Our Old Testament reading is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, and this can be found on page 156 in your Pew Bible. When you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set over you a king whom the Lord your God will choose. One of your own community you may set as king over you. You are not permitted to put a foreigner over you who is not of your own community. Even so, he must not acquire many horses for himself or return the people to Egypt in order to acquire more horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you must never return that way again. And he must not acquire many wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Also, silver and gold he must not acquire in great quantity for himself. When he has taken the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall remain with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God diligently observing all the words of this law and these statutes, neither exalting himself above other members of the community, nor turning aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he and his descendants may reign long over his kingdom in Israel. The word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading is from Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 to 66, and this is found on page 802 in your pew Bible. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. But Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards in order to see how this would end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were looking for false testimony against Jesus, so that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? But Jesus was silent. Then the high priest said to him, I put you under oath before the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? You have now heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
So this Sunday is Christ the King Sunday. It is the last Sunday of the year. Well, the liturgical year. Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced a mental shift of your calendar or not, um, but as a new college student, I discovered that my concept of the school of the year was all wrong. So as a child, I was taught there are four seasons, right? That governed the world and it stopped, started in January and it ended in December. And then I arrived at college and discovered that there are in fact only three seasons, a fall semester, a spring semester, and summer. I don't know what happened to winter. There's a couple of days in the middle that's Christmas break, um, and they're kind of like dead days. I don't know. They're they're just and it starts in August and it ends in May, and June and July are kind of just floating out there, right? Um, and so it's a little bit confusing when you you are used to thinking of spring starting in March, um, but that's actually like the middle of the spring semester. Um, so. And then, you know, old habits die hard because it's still really hard for me to think of January as being a winter month. Um, I don't know why. It's a silly anecdote, but it's essentially what Yahweh did for his people when he rescues them out of Egypt. And he recreates his people. He shifts their calendar so that the first day that they're free is the first day of their calendar. And Christians, we took this model and we do something similar with our liturgical year, we have shifted our calendar around the person and work of Jesus Christ. So next week we start Advent. It's the first Sunday of the year, even though it's November. Um, but it's the first Sunday and it's the anticipation of the coming Savior. But today we celebrate Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday, the climax of Jesus um, identity, the triumphant king. I've been teaching through Exodus this semester with our students, so forgive me if that's the first place that I go to look for kingship. But it is the first mention of Yahweh reigning as king. You see, in addition to shifting their calendar, Yahweh shifts their allegiance and their kingdom. When Moses and Aaron first approach Pharaoh, they don't just ask him to let the people go. They specifically say, we want them to stop serving you and to start serving Yahweh. They're transferring worship from Pharaoh, who thinks he's a god, to Yahweh, who is truly God. And the reference to uh, Yahweh being king comes right after he's part of the Sea of Reeds, and they are officially out from under the reign of Pharaoh. Moses and his sister Miriam, they sing this song of praise, and the last line proclaims Yahweh's reign or kingdom. Dr. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project says that the word here is actually a verb form of king, so Yahweh kings forever, if you will. I like that translation. And the youth know this from a couple of weeks ago, the whole nation of Israel was supposed to, at that point, become a kingdom of priests. Yahweh commissioned uh, Adam and Eve to reign over his creation, and they failed. And now the people of Israel are commissioned to do the same. But they fail the test, and they end up becoming a kingdom with priests instead of of priests. And actually, it's just the one. It's Moses. So God reigns as king forever and ever through the leadership of Moses, the, represent the representative of one for the many. And it's a shadow or a hint of the ultimate king that would come in the Messiah, 
But um, if you're familiar with the story at all, you know that it will not last. The people will choose again and again not to recognize Yahweh's reign and kingship, even after he rescues them, even after he established them as a people. After cycles of failing Yahweh over and over for 400 years, the book of 1 Samuel, instead of recommitting their lives to um, live under the reign of Yahweh, they actually ask for a human king, like all the other nations have. And you may know the story. Um, Samuel is a priest, and he's furious that they would even ask. Um, but surprisingly, Yahweh had actually anticipated this. He'd already given them the job description that we just read of what a king should be back in Deuteronomy when he's creating them as a people. Um, and that's our Old Testament passage for today. In Samuel, Yahweh gives them what they ask for, knowing full well that that's not what they really need, just like Jonathan preached about a couple of weeks ago. They had to learn that an earthly king will fall short by experience. So this Deuteronomy passage that we read earlier, it's surprising, not only because Yahweh anticipated and had the foresight to know that someday they would want a king, even though he was their king. Um, it also is surprising in what it says about the characteristics of a king. Chosen by Yahweh, chosen from the people, not greedy, not militaristic, not a womanizer, not considering himself above other people. Instead, he should know the law so well that he actually writes a copy for himself in his own hand. And he reads it all the days of his life and he carefully follows the law. Honestly, that doesn't sound very kingly by our human standards, either then or now. It sounds kind of vulnerable. King without an army, kind of bookish, right? This king is a scholar who is singularly focused on the word of Yahweh. It's unexpected and fundamentally different than any king like the other nations have, right? It seems like Israel forgot these instructions when they ask for a king, and unfortunately, none of Israel's kings will exhibit these characteristics. But that perfect king is still promised, and they are still anticipating his coming. So we jump forward another 400 plus years of failed kings being conquered and exiled, and now they are occupied by Rome. I guess that king thing didn't work out so well after all. In Matthew 26, which was our New Testament reading, we find that Jesus is before the Sanhedrin, and he is asked point blank if he is in fact the Messiah, the Son of God. He has been arrested and accused of all kinds of things that are not sticking because they are not true, but this question is a zinger. If they can get him here, they've got him. So, of course, he doesn't answer it the way that you and I in 21st century America want him to so desperately. But his answer is so blatantly obvious to Caiaphas, the high priest, that he kind of freaks out. He quotes from a passage in Daniel that would have been as familiar and known to them as Luke, I am your father, is to us. Okay, this is very familiar. Daniel has all kinds of prophetic visions, but this one in particular is found in Daniel 7. Daniel sees the four beasts, and they come, and they crush, and devour their victims, and he watches in horror as they are allowed to wreck the earth. But then he sees the Ancient of Days on his throne, 
bringing judgment to these beasts. And the main beast is slain and the others are rendered harmless. But that's not the end of the vision. Daniel 7, 13 through 14 says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one, like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. To the ears of the men and the Sanhedrin gathered at Caiaphas' house that night, Jesus was claiming the title of Son of Man, and that was blasphemous. Their definition of authority and glory and power did not match Yahweh's job description for a king. You see, these religious leaders have been filling in the blanks with their own corrupt human definitions of what it means to have authority, glory, and power, what it means to be king. They, like us, we all tend to impose our own cultural perspective and assumptions onto scripture. It's kind of like when you've been given a partial description of somebody and you have to pick them out of a crowd, or if you hear somebody's voice on the radio and then you meet them in person, they never quite match up with what you had filled in in your head. So being occupied by Rome, they might have expected somebody like Moses to deliver them from the Romans, someone with tricks up their sleeve to convince Caesar to pull his troops out and tax collectors in return from whence they came. Uh, maybe someone who would bring drastic judgment on the Romans to make sure that they knew the name of Yahweh like Moses did and fear what he might do if they didn't leave his people alone. They might have expected somebody like King Saul, who was tall and handsome and forceful and proud to swagger up to Pilate and tell him what's what. They might have expected somebody like King David who um, could usurp the poor, poor authority and leadership and lead armies to protect their lands. Maybe somebody like Solomon, who was rich and diplomatic, who could bargain their way out of this. They might have expected someone like Gideon, who was humble and reluctant and small, but Yahweh made him a fierce warrior to cut down the Midians with a handful of men. Or Joshua, who was obedient and faithful to Yahweh and, and brought an entire city to rubble. Very likely, they expected somebody like Judah Maccabee, who was a who used guerrilla warfare to rise up an army that would push the Seleucids out after um, a couple of uh, after a while of fighting. Um, just a few centuries before this, someone with political and military might to overthrow Rome and beat them back to their borders entirely. After all, this victory was still very fresh in their minds, as fresh as like the revolutionary or civil wars are to us. Maybe not super fresh, but enough that we remember them. We know what they were about. We did it once. We could do it again. So they certainly expected a warrior in a militaristic way. And you can imagine the scene when they see this ordinary looking man with a handful of followers no feats of strength, no political power, no military training, no outward shows of defiance to the Romans. This healer and this teacher claiming to have authority and dominion. The gasping and the shouting, and I can just imagine the chaos in that house. Generally losing their minds, tearing their clothes. 
No way could this guy be the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, approaching God and being given eternal sovereign power. They were expecting something very different, someone more powerful. As the trope goes, I thought he'd be taller. The ironic thing is that while on the surface, Daniel's description sounds more like the warrior that they were expecting, it doesn't actually preclude the Deuteronomy passage. If we superimpose Deuteronomy on Daniel, we see that they actually fit together very well. While having authority, glory, and power over all the nations um, sounds like you would need to be militaristic, this king wouldn't actually need to have an army because they would already possess the nations. You don't make war when you're already in control. And then having the kind of security in the ancient of days that you can approach him and live and be invited in, this king would not need to elevate himself. He doesn't need to prove anything by being domineering and holding power over the heads of others. By the way, dominion doesn't have to mean oppression. In fact, every instance of Yahweh giving dominion to someone in scripture is exactly the opposite. It means cultivating, caring for, and nurturing the kingdom. So in John's account of this night, this gathering of Sanhedrin then brings Jesus to Pilate, who asks him the same question. Are you the king of the Jews? According to one scholar, Jesus' first answer means something like this. I can truthfully use that title, but you give it a meaning that I cannot accept, so I cannot give you a clear yes. When Pilate presses him further, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would have fought to prevent me from being arrested by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from a different place. In other words, it doesn't fit your definition. He has a kingdom that is fundamentally different from what these people have defined. And that's why his answers seem so evasive and elusive. He can't accept the connotation of the terms that they're using. Instead, Jesus matches the quiet strength of Deuteronomy 17. First, he knows the law so well that it doesn't say he wrote it out himself, but he could have, right? He, we see this in his temptation stories. Every time the tempter says, you should do this, Jesus replies a quote from scripture, specifically, mostly from Deuteronomy 6 and 8, which is just a few chapters over from the chapter we read. This morning, over a tenth of Jesus' recorded words are quotes from the Old Testament. And after his death, two disciples meet him on the road to Emmaus, and he explains the scripture from Moses through the prophets to them. He knows the law. And not only does he know them, but he follows them very carefully. In Matthew 517, it's, he says that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He may have violated the religious leaders' interpretations of the law, but even then they couldn't come up with a single accusation that would stick prior to this New Testament passage. They try to catch him, and they have to resort to false witnesses who are saying untrue things about him before the Sanhedrin. Jesus even seems to follow the, the Roman law. He tells people, go ahead and pay Caesar's tax, right? Pilate 
can't find anything to charge him with, he wants to let him go, but is pressured by the Sanhedrin and, and the rest of the Jews not to. Jesus doesn't elevate himself above his fellow Israelites, but is in fact born in a small town to fairly unremarkable people. He heals people. He touches the untouchable. He hangs out with children and lepers and tax collectors without worrying about what damage would be done to his reputation. He isn't jockeying for position with the religious leaders or schmoozing the upper class or Roman leaders. He is washing his disciples' gross feet. Philippians says he emptied himself and took on the very nature of a servant. And ultimately, he sacrifices himself to care for his people, the one representing the many. That's what a heavenly king does. Simultaneously, Jesus matches this impressive image from Daniel. He's given authority and sovereign power, not because he took it by force, but because he is the incarnate God, and it's simply a part of who he is. He is given glory, not because he glorified himself, but because God the Father glorifies him. Jesus himself says in, in John 8, 54, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim is your God, is the one who glorifies me. He commands storms to stop, and they do. He heals people who aren't even physically close to him. He sends spirits who know who he is out of a man and into some pigs. And ultimately, he even has authority over death by coming back from the grave. In Revelation, John sees the final glorification, and he says, someone like the Son of Man. And he greets him in the heavenly realm. Every nation worships him not because he demanded it or coerced it, but because he is worthy of it. It's part of who he is. Anybody who's ever had a manager or a boss or a teacher that is on a power trip knows the difference between that and a well-respected manager, boss, or teacher who leads from a place of gravitas. The one desperately wants you to follow them, and the other simply invites you. The one you have to follow because it's your job or they're your teacher. The other you follow because you want to. And Jesus is the latter. He's worthy simply by being himself. His dominion is an everlasting dominion because he is committed to caring for his world and his people forever. Because he's not, his kingdom lasts forever, not because he's beating down the would-be invaders, but because he is eternal and he is present as the word in the beginning of time, and he is present at the end of time. He was re resurrected to eternal life and greeted John in Revelation, as I mentioned, by saying, I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. And the really exciting thing is that he invites us to join him as co-workers, co-laborers, building this kingdom that will last forever. As citizens of this kingdom of heaven, with this kind of king, how then should we live? Not like Jacob, who spent his entire life striving for something that had already been promised to him. If you don't know that story, go look it up. Um, not fighting or um, amassing wealth, but singularly focused on the word 
of God. We should spend our efforts redefining things like power and authority and glory and king by his word. So how can we redefine these words? First, we have to go to the source for his definitions. We have to read scripture and become so familiar with it that like the king in Deuteronomy 17, we could write our own copy. Have you ever considered doing that? In college, I took a lot of notes, not because I ever really look back at the notes, but because the act of doing so did something to put it in my brain. And a lot of people memorize scripture this way, by writing it out over and over. But have you considered maybe a larger passage, a whole book even? There's something about that kind of careful reading that will bring out things you've never noticed before, patterns, repetitions that were less obvious, but are very intentional. In addition, we have to meditate on these words, not in a spiritual guru, empty your mind sort of way, but in a cow chewing cud kind of way. To reference Dr. Tim Mackey from Bible Project again, the Hebrew scripture is meant to be meditation literature, where the Hebrew word for meditate means to mutter, or say quietly. Psalm 1 says to do this muttering day and night, just like the king in Deuteronomy. Mackey recommends comparing later stories with earlier stories, noticing patterns and themes and repetitions, and finding hyperlinks that trigger you back to the previous stories. And then to go talk to your friends about it, to chew on these puzzle pieces together. And that's what Sunday school classes are for. When we mention or when we meditate on king, for example, we find the many references that um, of the failed kings and how they did it wrong. We can compare those to the promised king who will get it right, who will make amends, that will crush the serpent's head from Genesis 3. Or when we meditate on kingdom, we can read all the parables that Jesus tells about the kingdom of God and start to better understand it. They're not plainly said. So we've got to meditate on them, puzzle over them, read them in tandem and chew on them. We can see how Jesus tells Pilate that his kingdom isn't of this world. We can connect back to Yahweh's first establishing the kingdom in Eden and his reestablishment of the king with the newly freed Israelites, the kind of ways that he tells them to live together, like forgiving debts every seven years and releasing slaves every seven years. We might be able to extrapolate those things for what we can do for our part in his kingdom. And lastly, Mackie says, as you let the Bible interpret itself, something remarkable happens. The Bible starts to read you because ultimately the writers of the Bible want you to adopt the story as your own. We don't meditate on scripture as an end in itself to be smarter right? There's a grander purpose here. Paul says in Romans 12, 12, don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will, um, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And where his will is in effect, so is his reign, so is his kingdom. So if we can transform our minds, and know what his good, pleasing, and perfect will is, we can help participate in bringing that kingdom here on earth. Like we pray each week, 
Only when we meditate on his word, marinate in these stories, can we redefine words like power and glory and authority and king by Jesus' standards. And when we meditate on them, we can break the patterns of this world and we can see the patterns that Jesus had thread throughout all of scripture so that we truly know him without filling in gaps of our own. And we can be transformed to enact God's will in the world and effectively bring his reign as co-heirs with Christ, our triumphant king. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.